Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, an author and psychic. She's the author of Who Do Justice Magic. Damien Keller, binaural production engineer, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in becoming a contributor to the show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything there that you need. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Dr. Scott Taylor, and we are here to talk about near-death experiences, and he also looks like he has some pretty cool hemisync CDs to help get us back into that state. Thanks for coming on today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Gary. Thank you for inviting me. Anytime. So, what got you into near-death experiences? Have you ever had one? I did. Uh, back in 1981, I had what's now known as a shared near-death experience, uh, something that didn't exist back in the literature then. And... Um, Let's just say it threw me off kilter. Would you like to hear the story? (laughs) I would love to hear the story, of course. (laughs) I'm messing with you. This is great. Um, So I was in love with a woman. Her name was Mary Frances. And she and her son, Nolan, had been out sailing on a beautiful summer's day. And on their way home from um, Lake Washington in southern Minnesota, um, she was attempting to make a left-hand turn onto uh, County Road. And as close as I can piece it together, uh, when she looked to see if there were any cars coming, she looked directly into the setting sun and didn't see it, see uh, one coming. Pulled out in front of it, and there was this horrific crash. Uh, Mary Fran... Um, was killed instantly. The, the car hit her right on the, on the driver's side door. And her son, Nolan, had this um, head injury um, that um, it took him six days to um, make his transition. Uh, both Mary Fran and Nolan were taken to um, Mayo at um, St. Mary's Hospital in, in Rochester, Minnesota, as part of the Mayo system. Mm-hmm. And um, she was, um, Mary Fran was a, was a donor. This sets a whole other story, um, which is why they took her immediately there. But Nolan um, was still alive. He was in a coma and, you know, placed in, in a hospital room. And it, it took him six days to make his transition. Um, and I, that's important because what happened over that six days was that um, he was the eldest grandchild in a family of nine kids. And um, that meant that there was time for all the Mary Fran's brothers and sisters to come and boyfriends and girlfriends and aunts and uncles and 
parents and grandparents and, um, uh, you know, just tons of people on her side of the family and then my family who, who were there. Um, and during that time, each of us, um, we kind of just signed up for this duty where we would um, be in the hospital room for a two-hour shift and we would keep Nolan company. And um, Mary Fran's um, eldest sister was Jannie. And Jannie and I had the 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. shift on the uh, fifth day of the after the accident. And this really burned in my brain because um, we, we sat there and um, Nolan was still in a coma, but we know that the last sense to leave is always the sense of hearing. So, you know, we told him stories. We told him how funny it was because right across the hall was the waiting room and I don't know, there are 40 or 50 people in there and they're all trying to get some sleep and sleeping higgledy-piggledy on, on cushions. It was, it, was really, it was really quite amusing. And, you know, so we just tried to keep it light and, and to keep his, keep his spirits up as best we could. Well, as it got to close to 3 a.m., uh, Janie, who had been a long-time trauma nurse, um, went to the end of the bed and took a look at the, the charts and then looked up at the monitors. You know, there's a whole myriad of monitors above Nolan's head. And, you know, she just looked back and forth between the two. And it was, it was really clear where the direction was heading. So, um, Janie reached out to me and uh, pulled me into a chair next to her, um, next to Nolan's head and, Janie proceeded to tell Nolan that um, he had been a very brave boy, that he was fighting so hard to stay, and that he was a good boy and that we loved him. But if his mother should come to pick him up, it was okay for him to go with her. And she repeated it again, saying, you are loved and if it, it's okay if you want to leave and go with your mother. And then I had the, um, the opportunity to, to do the same thing, to reinforce what Janie was saying and to, you know, express um, my love for Nolan and, and essentially to say goodbye and that it was okay for, for him to leave. So we, we left and went into the waiting room and, try to find a spot where we could, you know, do some sleeping. Well, it was about 40 minutes later when the nurse came in and told us all that um, it was going to be soon, that Nolan was starting to make his final descent. And so we all gathered up and filed into um, his hospital room. And as it, just as it turned out, um, I was one of the, the last people to enter the room and uh, that meant that the space around the bed was already like 3d and i so i wound up going over and sitting on the windowsill next to um, mary fran's youngest brother willie 
And we just sat and waited. And, you know, the, you know, the EEG and the heart monitors just all kept going down and down. And then finally there was that, that, that tone, that really distinctive flatlining tone as, as his, as his body finally gave out. Well, what I, what I witnessed right then was Mary Fran, who died six days before, um, coming across the veil and just scooping Nolan up out of his physical body. And they had this exquisite reunion, as you could only imagine, between mother and child. And somehow I got to participate in the feeling of that reunion. And it was extraordinary. And I, you know, just sat there in awe of this. And then what I didn't expect was that Mary Fran and Nolan then turned to me, came and embraced me. And then the three of us went into the light together. And when we entered into the light, I entered into a, a realm that I could not even begin to put words to. It was this extraordinary place of, of love and reunion and communion. And the three of us just stayed there for a while. And this is a wordless place. Lisa was for me. Um, it was it was a wordless place, but it was um, total communication between the three of us, and we got to be together again, and then we get to express our um, our love for each other and our. Um, Yeah, our, our commitment to each other. I'm not sure if that's the right word, really, but it was this, this sense that, um, that we have played an important part in each other's lives. So, um, and at some point, it was like all, all that needed to be said was said. And... I'm sorry, but Alexa's just talking to me over in the in the side there. I woke her up somehow with what <laughs> I said. Uh, somehow that there's a metaphor there, um, but the three of us said what we needed to say, and we expressed um, the emotions we needed to express, and it was done. And Mary Fran turned and guided Nolan further into the light and I then returned back to my physical body in uh, the hospital room. But that isn't the end of the story because what happened was um, I had been in the physical I, in the physical world, I was fully present with all of the grieving relatives in that space. And I was with Mary Fran and Nolan in the light. 
I didn't have a word for it then. I was only 27 years old, and I um, now we would call it bilocation, where there's two distinctly separate and equal consciousnesses that happened at the same time. I was fully with Mary Fran and Nolan in the light, and I was fully in the room with the grieving relatives. And I know that, Gary, because I, in that room, I'm in this state of, of bliss, either it's from the reunion or from actually being in the light. And there, there was this, it was like this inner force of joy or ecstasy or something that was just trying to break out of me. It was just so big. And my face reflected it. I was in this state of euphoria. And as you could well imagine, that would be totally inappropriate for the room because they had just lost their their grandson, their, their cousin, their nephew. And people were grieving. And I'm in this state of bliss and so the only thing I could think of to do was to take and cover my face with my hands so that the people in the room couldn't see what was going on with me because I know it would have been misinterpreted and and so then I was just able to you know cover my face and then wait until both parts of me had rejoined together um, so I had this shared experience with Mary Fran and Nolan and I was in the room at the same time with the relatives having this bilocation and you know I I didn't know what to do with that um, I grew up in southern Minnesota in a small town and um, uh, you know the thing that I it, I, that I couldn't explain to myself was why in the moment of my greatest grief am I in my greatest joy? That that didn't make any sense and it's still true today when I when I tell this experience um, there's a part of the grief that comes up you know for losing Mary Fran and Nolan but there's this other part that is just this is so extraordinary that I I can feel it, you know, starting to break free again. And so it was, um, so I didn't have words for it. I didn't have any kind of grounding for it because, you know, it wasn't part of the lexicon of the Presbyterian church that I grew up in. I mean, it's just, it, it was so outside of my experience that I really didn't talk to anybody about it. Um, and for 20 years, it was a long time. Uh, before I could finally uh, begin to put words around it, wrap wrap words around it, so that I could adequately express what happened to me. Um, so that's my story in a nutshell, Gary. So you didn't tell anybody afterwards for twenty years. Twenty years. You kept it to yourself. Yep. That had to have been difficult. Oh no. <laughs> no? Um, um, there's, for your viewers, um, I did my uh, doctoral research at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, um, 
and my dissertation paper was on near-death experiences. And it was um, in my research, I found out there's this thing called fear of disclosure. Um, I, I, it didn't feel safe. It didn't feel safe to tell my family or my, the community that I grew up in. Um, my friends, they, this would have all been way too woo-woo for them. And, and then I started to investigate things. That doesn't mean I kept it under wraps, um, because, um, you know, one of the things we know about near-death experiencers, me included, was that afterwards, um, you know, I had this thing in my head which said, if I was in that space once, I could do it again. And I can go there and visit Mary, Fran, and Nolan, and I can um, be able to touch that, that, that beauty that is the energy of the near-death experience. And so I just started searching the world. Um, I became intensely curious about all subjects spiritual. And I, I traveled all over. And although it wasn't a completely formed thought at the time when I do my retrospective, I, I went to visit um, ancient religious sites, hoping that there was some sort of spark that would help propel me into that space. So I went to, you know, Stonehenge and the Oracle of Delphi and um, all of the temples along the Nile and the, um, you know, and in Egypt, you know, the, the Sphinx and um, the Great Pyramids. I went to Machu Picchu. I, and, you know, just, it, I'm, and I wasn't able to find that spark and, and I participated with, um, I learned from shamans in both North and South America. I studied the Emoto religion in Japan. I was really casting out all over the place. Um, I started learning how to meditate, started with TM, and then I found the Monroe Institute. And they have a particular technique and a particular set of protocols that um, allowed me to enter into a meditative state and be able to find Mary, Fran, and Nolan again and be able to establish a relationship with them, so which continues to this day. Um, Mary, Fran kind of comes in and out. Right now, she's in an in phase. Um, I can talk to her frequently, and Nolan is always with me. He's like right there, and he... Um, it's interesting how that works, though, um, because uh, Nolan, you know, when he left, he just turned seven. Um, but, uh, well, at least how the two of us have it set up is that there's a there's a place called a park. Um, and in the park there, um, which is a very particular vibration, it's the um, the vibration of life between lives. And we have a place that's set up. It's a, it's a park bench off kind of a gravel pathway. So if those of you have been to New York City, 
um, think Central Park and those long wooden benches with kind of the scrolly things at the end. We sit at this at this park and and we have conversations. And sometimes he shows up as seven, not very often anymore. Um, but he'll show up at whatever age is appropriate, given the subject that we need to talk about. And, um, and anyway, so yeah, we we have a have an ongoing relationship, and it was because I uh, spent a long time uh, searching on how to touch that space again, and. And it was only then it was that all goes back to the question of, you know, why didn't you tell all these people? Well, I didn't have a sense of I didn't have the words for it. I didn't have um, the context either in the non-physical sense or particularly in the physical sense. I mean, you know, my uh, my church doesn't talk about this sort of thing. My spiritual group didn't talk about it. You know, it's just. I needed some place to come from other than this wordless expression of love and joy. And, and so anyway, that's what it took. It's taken a long time to be able to put words to it. Hmm. After the initial experience, um, like, like it sounds like you, you obviously had a longing to go back to that experience. That's why you saw it so long. But when you first came back, were you a little bit bummed out that you actually came back into your body? Did you want to stay there? Oh. Um, no, I didn't. Um, uh, you hear that from from near-death experiencers that, that, they, um, that they want to stay, especially those that have been uh, really traumatized by whatever event that led to the to the near death experience. Mm -hmm. you know, I've talked to all kinds of folks who just I'm not going back to that body. No way. You know? <laughs> um, that's going to take me years of rehabilitation to fix that to fix that body. Um, but I've also talked to a whole bunch of folks that are um, especially young mothers who were just adamant that they not stay, that they had a family to raise, they had children to take care of. Um, anyway, I, I fell into that latter group that, you know, I, I felt like I needed to be here in the physical world. And let's face it, part of me already was. I mean, I'm there with them, but there's a really live part of me sitting on the windowsill in the hospital room and you know it just was never even contemplated that i would stay and go with them um i you know you're the first person that's ever asked me that question um i i would have to say it was part of the wordless communication that happened that you know we're going to exchange um, our, our feeling commitment to each other, but at the same time, um, it's, it was time for them to go on. It was time for me to come back. It was just kind of understood. Hmm. Yeah. Like when I had mine, I didn't want to come back. I'm still yeah. angry about it years later that I had to come back. 
You know, there's nothing like I, that, that. That that feeling of unity is incredible. Yeah, I had a a nurse tell me that when she was tending to a person that they'd brought back, <laughs> the guy came out of it and he immediately reached up and grabbed her uniform. You know, and went, why did you bring me back? Why? Yeah. It was so good over there. Yeah. Anyway, no, I was. I'm not in that camp. <laughs> so, um, in your search to to recreate this experience, what mm-hmm. different things did you try? Um, I can, I'll just relate a couple of them to you. Um, I remember being in the in the Sphinx. I'm sorry, in the in the Great Pyramid, mm-hmm. and there's a chamber in there, and there's a sarcophagus that you can climb into and i said boy that seems like that you know all the energies should align and you know go into a meditative state and open myself up to see if something would happen nope um same kind of thing uh when i was in stonehenge it was back before there were all the barriers and you could just drive your car park next to it and walk up and you know, try to, to, to catch the energy of the space and to see if that would, you know, propel me. I had, um, uh, particular success with TM. It was really good for helping me, um, calm my, my mind down so that other things could happen. But it really was, um, the Monroe, the Monroe work, um, their use of binaural beat technology. And their particular protocol for how you put your mind in the right place and the tools and techniques for how to navigate in the non-physical universe mm-hmm. were, um, were extraordinary. And I, and I wound up teaching for them for 35 years and, um, the last two of which, um, I was their executive director. So I, I know the organization really well and, um, and, and it still took me, uh, I think it was about eight years ago that I finally figured out how to use their meditative techniques to get to, um, the places that NDEers visit, like the tunnel and the life review and the reunion with dead relatives, you know, those things you often read about as common elements to, to near death experiences. And, yeah, it took some tweaking, um, and in particular, what I what I have found out over the years is that um, the Monroe Institute has a very particular uh, protocol that they go through, and as a result, there's an energy around that protocol. So whether you visit the campus or you do the, um, you know, like the affirmations and things at the beginning to kind of get yourself in that right space you enter into a stream of energy, enter into a stream of consciousness that is supported by everybody else who has done that kind of meditation. Well, what I discovered was that um, near-death experiencers, I mean, there are millions every year in just in the United States, somewhere between 5 and 10% of the population has had a near-death experience. So, I mean, you know, it's we have 
Yeah, it's just millions of people. So what that means is, though, that there's this there's this energy around near death experience, mm -hmm. and if you can figure out how to tap into it, you can flow right with it. You don't have to try so hard. It's um, anyway. So that's the that's the idea behind it. Is you know, if I want to be able to to go and visit dead relatives or um, heck, I mean, you know, my old pets are there. I mean, everybody's in, <laughs> um, is available to us in, in that state of, uh, the non-physical universe. Um, yeah, that's the, it was saying, okay, there's another cosmology. There's another way to think about how we enter into the non-physical universe. Monroe's got one. But near-death experiencers have now long established um, this pathway back to the to the non-physical, so that you can get um, get there easily and come back easily, hmm. and not have to just beat your head against the side of the wall trying to figure out how to make that happen. Anyway, so that's yeah, that's what I discovered is that. There is a pathway that's been laid down to us by every single person that's ever had a near-death experience. And that energetic is out there. And, and it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to, to tell people about and to be able to give people that experience if they, if they want it. So is there any particular brain state? Like, is it alpha state, theta state that people need to enter in order to have that NDE experience? Um, the quick answer is no. Um, because uh, the most powerful thing in the universe, in my opinion, is intention. And if you have the intention to go and do that, you can do it. Can you do it more easily? Absolutely. So... One of the geniuses of uh, what made Bob Monroe really extraordinary in this space was he invented a thing called Hemisync, which is a binaural beat technology that um, uses different tones on each ear to set up a standing tone that the brain then adopts as its working vibration. And depending upon the difference in the tones between the ears, you can then set up different brainwave states like alpha and theta, whatever. But his genius came in with the idea that um, you can layer these. And when you begin to layer them, and not just go with two, but go with four, go with six, go with eight, and then set up these... Um, these vibrations, uh, all things are then possible. And at the beginning, when, when Bob did it, it was all brute force. He would put people on a cot in a room and slap headphones on them and, and start playing with the, you know, the, the sound thing and say, well, what do you feel now? What do you feel now? And, and eventually what he discovered was that, um, you could enter into something called, um, what he calls focus 10, which is uh, mind awake, body asleep, which is you put the tones in for putting your body to sleep. So it's relaxed and it's out of the way. 
so you don't think about it. It's just in in this deep, deep relaxation or possibly asleep. And at the same time, you put in the frequencies for bright, awake, clear um, uh, vibrations. So at so at the same time, your body is asleep and your mind is bright, awake, and clear, and that's the state that um, he recreated, which is the one that made him famous was he's the first one really to popularly document what out of body states were all about. And he used the binaural beat, the hemisync technology to assist him in doing that. And, and then over time, you know, they discovered more of these states, different states. And then the crucial thing happened later um, was we started to re, reverse engineer it. So you could ask like a monk to say, okay, go into the, the place of no time and no space. And they would go and do that and they take EEGs and they get like a dozen of them, uh, monks to do this. And they would look at the EEGs and go, oh, here's the similar waveform pattern. That must be the waveform pattern for no time and no space. And then they would create the sounds in order to mimic that. And that led to a huge explosion in finding these different vibrations. So that was a really long answer, sorry, Gary, to the, to the, to the question of, is there specific vibrations to um, specific events that happen in a near-death experience? And the answer is, yeah. Um, uh, meeting your guide, for instance, very often when people leave their body at for the very last time, there's a guide standing there at the end of the bed that's willing to escort them to the light. Well, that takes place at a certain vibratory level. And if they choose to use the tunnel, um, that has its own vibratory rate. There's a vibratory rate for that space where the reunion happens uh, with all the dead relatives and friends. And the life review is in another, as another vibration. Um, um, and that area of life between lives that I refer to where I go to meet Nolan on the picnic or on the, on the park bench, that has a very specific vibratory rate. So it, you don't have to, but it just makes things a whole lot easier when you're introduced to that vibration and then go, oh, I'm here. And if I do this, this, and this, it makes, makes it easier to have conversations with with people who have that passed on or have messages for me. So is there a way, um, like combining the, the hemisync binaural technology with, um, things like, um, hypnosis and like subliminal messaging? Um, I think there are people who have done that. Um, one of the things that Bob, Monroe did early on was to say that when you're in these expanded states of awareness that you have total control over what happens. You are not under the influence of anything or anyone else. And so he tended to say, well, we're not going to put you in a hypnosis or we're not going to use subliminal messages because that infers that the work you did was the responsibility of the um, subliminal messages, and it wasn't you. And he was 
um, really quite adamant that it's um, you need to be able to own these experiences to be able to say, I did these, I can do them again. I don't have to rely on hypnosis or subliminal messages. And, and the way that um, binaural beats work is that once you've learned one, once you've been there, maybe a couple, three times, you've gone and visited Nolan in the park with me. Well, once you've done that, you don't need the binaural beats anymore because your brain is very, very good at remembering. So all you have to do, like right now, I could just take a deep breath, picture that park bench, poof, and I'm there. Because I've done it so often, that pathway is really laid down for me. And I can go there on a moment's notice. And that is um, one of the really wonderful things about using binaural beat technology is that it's a learned skill. And after a while, you just, you know, throw the CDs away. Well, you should do that anyway, because who owns a CD player anymore? But <laughs> you get what I'm going <laughs> Well, they are for download on MP3 too, I believe. Right? Yeah, yeah. You can you can delete the MP3. There we go. Better languaging. Hmm. Um, so so what made you um want to do the CDs? Because you have a, a um a whole bunch of different ones out, like seven. It looks like something like that. Yeah, I I've, um essentially what I wanted to do was to document the skills that it took to enter into that state of expanded awareness that near-death experiencers use, and then to highlight some of the experiences that are, and it was my choice, I think they're the most, um, like the keen ones of or the common elements of a, of a near-death experience. So. You know, we, we spend time with um, learning how to get into that space and creating an affirmation for it. And then, you know, it's all about meeting your guides and then it's exploring the tunnel. And then there's a, there's one of them, it's just, oh my God, this is such a great place. Um, it's called Embracing Source. It's that, um, it's that space where everything exists before form. Um, if you're a Genesis 1 fan, you know, it it starts out, the Bible starts out, there is the void. Well, in that space, um, extraordinary things can happen. So, um, you know, that's the space of, of pure love. Um, it's and then there's a reunion with the dead relatives. And then, you know, it's visiting the, the cities of light and that that unity that you were talking about, you know, as being kind of that, oh mm -hmm. my God, experience. Um, that I call the realm of all knowledge because, you know, in, in the non-physical world, all the bits are connected with all the other bits. So there's nothing that you cannot know because that's the nature of the non-physical universe is that it all of the pieces are 
interact with everything else, with everything else on there. So, uh, yeah, so what I did was I just took a near-death experience and I kind of chopped it up into little parts and said, here are some of the things that people have experienced in a near-death experience and here's how to go at them and have them for yourself. And and then I tried to give some little context to it, meaning uh, there's near-death experiences um, are often showed on television as, you know, like, excuse me, um, the white light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's kind of become the metaphor for... Um, for near-death experiences, but that's only one of three types. Um, there are people who experience, um, that don't experience that white light, they experience black light. And they enter into that space that is um, is the void I was telling you about, where it's, it's a place of nothingness, but it's everything. It's hard to explain, but it's, where everything exists in its in its in its pre-state. Um, for those of you that are Star Trek fans, um, I think of this as the replicator. You know, when Jean-Luc Picard walks up to the wall and he says, "Earl Grey, hot." Well, that replicator takes molecules and then puts them into a cup and and Earl Grey tea, and then he gets to have a a lovely um, cup of tea. That space is kind of like that. It's where all of these, everything exists before form. And then it takes consciousness, it takes desire, intention. That's what then forms things that can come into our physical universe. And the last light that's used is clear light. And, um, this is distinctly different from white, black, and clear. Um, clear light is the kind of experience I had. And you, somebody who's had a clear light experience would, it's like they don't go anywhere, except that all of a sudden now, you begin to realize that everything is made up of the same stuff that I'm just differentiated bits of the same stuff. So this, you know, pop filter and this microphone, that's the same as me. And I'm the same as, as you, Gary. And everything has, um, is in that unity state. So black light, I'm sorry, clear light, um, is probably the, you don't have very many people that have a clear light experience. Same way with black light. Um, not as many people have, but more have experience with the black light. Um, and I can always tell there's a, there's a, a little trick that I've not a trick. Um, but there is a, a bodily reaction when somebody is telling me about their black light experience, they will invariably take and cross their arms 
and, and do this little rocking thing and tell me about this space where they were um, so loved, unconditional love, and that they were held and that they were honored. Um, and more than one person who's described this to me called this the womb of God. Isn't that lovely? The womb of God, black light. And um, the white light is often referred to as, um, like kids refer to it as, as the father light. Because mm -hmm. um, it has this, it's so, it's so strong and powerful and incredibly intense. I had a couple people who, when they entered into that white light experience, were savvy enough to turn around and look behind them to see if there was a shadow, and there isn't. The, the light is ever-present everywhere, and I think it's the best way to think about this is that you get absorbed into the light. You're absorbed into the white or the black or the clear light. It's not like it's happening to you. It's that you merge with it, which is, um, which I think is a lovely, a lovely way to think about it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, my experience was definitely a blacklight experience. Oh, you did that one. Okay. Yeah, it was really cool. I mean, it was like, oh, there was more than just a blacklight. It was like being in the center of like the universe, kind of. And yep. it was some colors, but you can't really describe them. And it was sound, but you can't really describe, describe it, them. you know. And it was just peaceful. And I existed, but I didn't exist. I was conscious, <laughs> but I wasn't thinking, you know. I was experiencing maybe time, but I wasn't. Yep. And um, and then when I came back, I was, I'm was. i still mad that I came back. I'll, I'll never really... Get over that, you know. I have to, you know, live maybe another forty freaking years. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I ran into this this wonderful quote. Um, it was on. We were talking about um, why the first when people list the common elements of an of a near death experience, usually the first one is ineffable. You know, that great English word that says, we really don't have a word for this. And we don't. But this guy by the name of Bill Ufer, um, I ran across this the other day, and I'm going to read it to you. And he goes, try to draw an odor using crayons. You can't even begin to try, no matter how many crayons you have in your box. That's what it's like describing near-death experiences with words. No matter how many words you use, you can't really describe what an NDE is like. Mm -hmm. Isn't that great? Yeah, it is great. <laughs> I just have this, you know, picture of me as a little kid, you know, kind of, you know, well, is an odor purple? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't get to the essence of what odor is, you know, and... And I know people out there who are watching this that maybe have a little COVID and lost that sense of smell. You know, they're in that spot right now. My sister and my bride both have lost their sense of smell. And, I mean, it's 
yeah, it makes the world a different place. Hmm. Yeah. So with anyway. with the CDs, um, is there ever a danger of somebody going into that state and not wanting to come back out? <laughs> um, even if they wanted to stay, they couldn't um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is physical. Um, somehow, when our bodies were designed, um, our bladder has trumps everything. <laughs> it just <laughs> says you can be laying there in a meditative state, and if you got to go to the bathroom, it just takes you out. I mean, you you gotta you gotta go do your business. It just it's just a rule. <laughs> so, so yeah, from a physical standpoint, at some point, um, you're gonna have to go to the bathroom, and that will that brings you back out because your body is telling you, listen, you're still here in the physical, you got to stay. And the, and the second one is maybe a bit more esoteric, but um, your guides won't let you. If it's not your time, it's not your time. And, and if you have a strong agreement to get something done here in the physical world, um, you're coming back and, and that's what I've heard from the guides that I've talked to just said, if, if it's not time for you yet, you have to come back hmm. and finish what it is you're doing. Um, so which leads to, leads to another whole discussion about, um, are there, how many exit points do you have in your life? Is it just the one at the end or are there several different times? And um, what I've come to believe is that um, we have like segments in our lives and at, at those segments, um, very often we get to choose. Hmm. We get to choose, are we, you want to, you want to exit or you want to continue on and maybe move on to the next phase of your life that you wanted to work on. Yeah, I was having this conversation earlier today and somebody mentioned that that most people have three exit points. Yeah, I don't know about the number, but I I have this sense that there is more than one and depending upon how you're doing with your commitment with kind of like the contract that you signed up for um or you know, you're sitting there going, yeah, you know what? This is working for me and I'm ready to take on the next challenge. Mm -hmm. Okay. Boom. We'll make that happen for you. So, yeah, I, I think there's multiple exit points and there is a conversation that happens between our higher selves and our, our guides that, you know, keeps us on track and doing what we're supposed to be doing. So what are some of the benefits of using your CDs and MP3s to have these type of experiences? I mean, it has to be more than just a curiosity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I chuckle because I think it's just more fun than one person should have. <laughs> it's just, um, because when we go and explore... Um, the places that near-death experiencers go to, um, 
it's not in the same energetic state as happens in a near-death experience. Those are incredibly intense, and they are... Um, profoundly upsetting that's not the word i want but when you're in that space you don't know what to do you know you're just kind of existing there in the black light right mm -hmm. and you're going i am but i'm not in is there time there's no time actually i'm not thinking but i am thinking i mean it's but what we're trying to do is to give people the tools and techniques to then begin to navigate these different spaces so they can have um, they can find out what they want to find out. So it's um, it's a gentler and guided way to go to these to go to these places. And there have been enough people that have done them that you know it's it's not that hard anymore. Mm -hmm. that, if that makes sense. Um, so that's that's one of the benefits um, is that somebody who's interested in exploring the non-physical universe can use all different there's all kinds of meditation traditions out there bob and rose was just one of them near-death experiencers that's one and and so you can learn to tap into that into that experience and like uh, I, I teach a course where we do this 25 times during the course of a week. Go to the non-physical universe and come back again. The result of which at the end is um, that people totally lose their fear of death. They go, oh, I know what's going to happen. I know who my guide is going to be. I know what the family reunion is going to look like. I know who the people I'm inviting are going to be. I know what the life reunion, how that can happen. I know there's a, there's a very special non-physical guide. I call it the teacher protector, a being of light that accompanies you when this happens. And then there's this wonderful interaction that happens during a life review. Um, so we know you know, what are these, what are the parts? So when people come back, they go, yeah, that's the next adventure. And I'm totally cool with it, that I'm going to go someplace really unique and, and it's going to be designed just for me and it's going to be wonderful. Pause on that because one of my favorite quotes came from Woody Allen which said, um, said, I'm not scared of death. I just don't want to be there when, when it happens. <laughs> and the point is, when, when you do these exercises, one of the benefits is that um, you begin to realize that you are not your physical body. And your physical body could be afraid of death, but you, at the soul level, are looking forward to it. So the body has its own consciousness and it's it can say, I'm afraid of this, Scott. I don't want to have XYZ disease or I don't want to be in a car accident because that's going to really hurt. And you can acknowledge that and go, yes, you're right, but we're not afraid of the next step in life. 
And so there becomes this distinction between who you are as a non-physical person and who you are as a physical person. That is incredibly valuable. And you can learn to, to talk to your physical body and help it along and help it do what it needs to do on the physical, on the physical plane. Um, Let's see. Oh, so the original question was, you know, what kind of benefits does this work um, mm -hmm. do for you? Well, um, certainly it allows um, it allows us to put words around an experience. One of the things I really value in talking with hundreds of folks that have had near-death experiences is that we begin to develop a vocabulary for what happened. When it happened to me in 1981, I mean, um, Moody's book had only been out for five years. You know, that was written in 1975. And, and it was just, just starting to, you know, enter into the consciousness of us all. Well, shared near-death experiences weren't talked about until the early 90s. Um, it was PMH Atwater, uh, a buddy of ours who mm -hmm. uh, wrote about it in one of her books. And that's how I found out that I had had one. Was I read the book and in it it said, um, sometimes there are people when bedside of a person making the transition will leave with them and go with them and experience um, what it, what that transition looks like until it's no longer appropriate. Then you come back to your physical body. That's a summary. It's words to that effect. Um, and you know that's when the veil was lifted from my eyes and said, "Oh, that's what that's about." And, and it wasn't until I had a private conversation with PMH and she was telling me about her research that talked about the three different kinds of light, the white, black, and the clear. And when she started talking about the clear light, which I'd never heard of before she talked about it, I went, oh my word. So I had a form of near-death experience. I had a form of it in terms of the clear light. And so it allows people to have a home, to have a home for this experience that maybe they didn't know um, had what it was that happened to them. Because, you know, maybe in their box of crayons, they didn't have the right colors to, mm -hmm. to describe it. And, you know, I, you know, I've, I've tried for 40 years to, to wrap words around my experience. And I'd tell you, I, you know, it, it's, pale to what actually happened mm -hmm. and you know and and i'm okay with that you know it's the best i can do right now as as i talk to more people as i hear more languaging as i read more um i'm i'm better able to articulate not only my my experiences but other people's too right yeah like one of the things i try to do is encourage people to go out and try these things yeah, you know, don't 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 take my word for it. <laughs> go do it. Go out and try it. Go out and try it. 
But I mean, fuck, you, you know, know the, the lovely thing with like CDs, I mean, they're 20 bucks a piece. I mean, really, that's not much of an investment to try out something that puts you into an expanded state of awareness so that you begin to go, does that feel like what it is that you had? Um, or if you've never had one and you've heard about them, to be able to go, oh, this feels different than my normal consciousness. Okay, now that I can feel the difference, what can I do in this space? What mm -hmm. tools and techniques do I have to navigate this space? So it's, uh, thank you for doing that, Gary. I, um, it's, it's really helpful to have so many tools out there now. And, you know, it's like, which one resonates with you? Go for it. If it's, you know, one of my CDs, wonderful. If it's my workshop, even better. But, you know, if it's somebody else's work or maybe you're drawn to, excuse me, um, to doing mediumship work, um, you know, the work of Suzanne Giesman. I mean, she's amazing and she teaches wonderful classes. Um, that will put you in touch, you know, with what, what goes on on the other side. Oh, it's, it's cool. Yeah, I have... Richard Ireland, Mark Ireland coming on yeah. next week. You know, he, he's done a lot with mediumship because he had lost his son and then he um, went out and did tons of mediums and stuff to try to verify. And plus his father was like a, a psychic that used to work with Yuri Geller and <laughs> really a cool story. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, that's one of the things I also like to point out is um, I, I believe like when we tap into these areas of consciousness, um, one of the things that I I realize anyway is um, that a lot of these like psychic phenomenon, near death experience, mediumship, they're not superhuman abilities. They're they're just natural human abilities, and yep. everybody has them. Everybody's got them. It's, it's just, it's just recognizing when, when you have them. Um, I, after I took my first course at, at Monroe, um, I didn't really appreciate how, um, tuned up my intuition would be. I, I came back and then all of a sudden I was noticing that I was like, pick up this book, go into this store, talk to that person. And, and it wasn't like a voice in my head. I don't get things auditorily very mm -hmm. often. I get them either gestalt or like a kinesthetic. I just know that my body feels like it should turn right into this bookstore. And, um, but then you sit there and go, well, haven't all of us experienced that? You know, the phone rings, you go, oh, it's Aunt Sarah. Yeah. And you pick it up, and it's Aunt Sarah, and you just knew it would be. Not because you had an appointment, just because you just you just knew. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, those kinds of things happen when more frequently when you start to actually develop these, these senses. And... Some people develop them on their own. Some people go to classes. You know, some people ignore them. And yeah, I 
they're all it's all natural it's all it's all built within us um you know kind of what i i like to tell people is that you know in when you leave the physical world and you enter into the non-physical world you enter into this world of unity where everything is a part of everything else and of course that means that all knowledge is available to everything else well we have committed to coming into the world of the physical and in the world of the physical um, because of how this is set up we've got it's it's a world of duality where the appearance is that i am different than this microphone i am different than gary and i'm different than this chair that i'm sitting on but that's not really the case but we have to have um this filter that's what the brain is for this this filter that knocks out all of that other information that's available to us and so that we can then really appreciate and get the lessons we need to from the world of duality here in the physical world well I mean that filter is malleable some people have it wide open some people have it tightly closed and and so I think that's what we're doing is that we're discovering that we can open up the doors that we want and to be able to you know tap into that universal knowledge that is to our birthright because that's where we come from absolutely yeah, and, and I think it's great that you're putting out, you know, CDs that are affordable for people to use and experiment and, and have these experiences and, and, you know, get a little glimpse into um, our where we came from, you know, where yeah. we're going to return to and not have to worry about dying so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when, when you talk to... Most people, not everybody, but when you talk to most people, they'd say that that's that's a pretty cool transition. <laughs> it is cool from, from being in the physical to being in the non-physical. Yeah, uh, it's um, you know I had a ton of people tell me they said, "Well, it's it's as natural as taking your next step. It's as natural as taking your next breath. Mm-hmm. It's no more difficult than that." From you know. In one time you're alive, and in the next breath you're in the non-physical universe, and you and you just move on. It and it's 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 a beautiful thing. When I um, when I saw saw um, Mary Fran and Nolan, when Mary Fran came and scooped Nolan up out of his physical body, um, you know there wasn't any resistance to that switch between the non-physical and the physical it was especially in their case it was a reunion to be wished for it was a reunion um you know urgently desired you know and and it was and it was exquisite oh yeah in fact, okay, so little pause. Can I do a sidebar here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, when I started doing my research on near-death experiences, I went back to see if I could find like the earliest recorded cases. Well, there's 
there's a soldier back in Roman times who was thrown on a pile of dying dead soldiers and he woke up days later. That wasn't particularly instructive. That's the earliest one that I found. But there was a year in the 1800s where there were wild weather swings in, um, in the Swiss Alps. And there was a, it happened on more than one occasion that, that year, but there was a series of climbers that were climbing the Matterhorn. And they started out and it was cold and it's just perfect for using, you know, ice picks to get your way up the mountain. And it was, it was, you know, the crampons worked. It was always great. So they're part way up the mountain and the weather comes in and it's this big switch. And all of a sudden it's blowing this really warm air and it's melting the ice that they're using for grip and they can't hold on. And the mount, the, the climbers then were falling off the mountain and it was this, you know, steep, quite a distance drop. And, um, as they described it afterwards, they said they were falling down and they went, Oh, this is, this is it. I mean, I'm, I'm toast. I'm out of here because I don't want to be here when I land. Mm -hmm. And so they, they just jumped out of their physical body had a near-death experience. The part they didn't know, though, was that all of the snow had come off the mountain, and it was soft and, and fluffy and broke their fall when they when they hit, and they didn't die. <laughs> and so um, there was there's a whole series of accounts of. of of climbers that fell off mountains and jumped out of their bodies on the way down. And that's, that has to do with, um, to reinforce your point that it's an easy train. It's an easy transition. You can just will yourself out and yeah. I mean, that's better than having to feel the splat. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> don't want to feel the splat. Um, I've, I don't know, I've talked to at least a dozen people who, um, were in car crashes mm -hmm. and they could see the crash coming. Yeah, I've heard this too. And they're going, I, I know what's going to happen and this isn't going to be pretty and I'm out of here. And so they jump out of their bodies before the crash actually hits and, and then they go do their near death experience and the EMTs come along later and boom, you know, wake them back up again and they come back. But it's a, it's a choice at, at that point. Uh, I'm not sure choice is the right word. It's a deeply felt desire to not be there. Or, or maybe we're just give like an option. I don't know. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I'd really want to feel that when it hits. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to feel it. Um, so before we wrap it up, where's the best place for my listeners to find you and to find your CDs? Um, well, this is pretty easy to remember. Uh, my website is neardeathmeditations.com. Neardeathmeditations.com. Awesome. And, and my CDs are there with the explanations on what, what's on each one. Um, 
the course that I teach um, is on there, that five and a half day course I mentioned earlier, that's on there. And um, there's some wonderful stories and uh, it, it's just it's just a nice place to mess around for a couple of minutes. Awesome. Well, I'll put a link to that in the notes of this episode so my listeners can go check it out when they're listening or after they're done. And hopefully they'll get your CDs and uh, have some near-death experiences. They'll be able to visit the same places as near-death experiencers go to. I, I try to be a little more uh, gentle than an NDE. <laughs> Great. This is that's a good thing. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for coming on today. Oh, Gary, it's been lovely. Thank you. I appreciate the time with you and with every one of you out there in the audience. Appreciate right. you listening. Excellent. Hang on for one second. I just have to play my outro.